closing up the estate and everything else over the weekend. They'll be back probably midweek. So um, pray for them as you have as they come to mind as they are uh, processing that loss. Uh, it's unclear as to whether her her father was a was a believer or not. So just pray for uh, her witness to her family during this time, because by and large her family are not believers. So you can pray for that as they have are going to have lots of opportunity to interact with various family members during this time. So, but uh, in light of that, I am going to be taking over for BJ for core seminars this morning. So well, to to open up, why don't we start with start with prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for your mercy and your grace this morning. We ask, we do ask for BJ and Kristen that you would be with them as they uh, are uh, uh, dealing with this loss of Kristen's father. We pray that they would be good witnesses for the gospel with Kristen's family during this time and pray that they, would, they themselves would be encouraged by your grace this morning as they are uh, just continuing to work through that situation. Lord, we do pray for our time. We, we ask that you give us grace to understand uh, these concepts about guidance and how to make good decisions. And uh, Lord, may you bless to us the, our, our time spent considering this topic. Lord, we just commit our time to you and ask for your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good. Good morning. Today we're going to take, take on the second half of what was ultimately a two-part portion of the portion of our, our time together. Uh, so last week, uh, BJ started to help us see how to use and not use certain tools for making good decisions. Uh, the, do, the, the tools we went over were God's word, prayer, and the counsel of others. So this morning, we're going to look at the final two. I think even at the beginning of his session, he listed all five of them. We're going to look at the final two tools that we have for making good and godly decisions. Um, so we're going to look at circumstances and feelings. And then we're going to spend a few minutes to wrap up this little subsection of the, of the class by taking a look at wisdom overall, which kind of encompasses everything that we've been talking about. Uh, you've probably, probably noticed that in this class we've had a bit of an anti-mysticism slant to it. right? We haven't been real favorable towards mystic or mystical ways of understanding how to make decisions. I think that evangelicals tend to be way too mystical in their understanding of how God normally guides us. Uh, we talk about following God as if it's mainly about wisely discerning between different senses and promptings that we get from the Spirit. Or we say things like, God told me to do something, when we aren't referencing an audible divine voice at all. So to help us think through this tension, let me open up with a question to you. What can go wrong when we assume that God normally guides us in mystical or sensational ways? What are some of the things that can go wrong when we think that God's, that's how God gives us input? Might not line up with the Word of God. Exactly. Yes. Yep. Other thoughts? We end up listening to ourselves and not biblical wisdom. We're going to talk. We're going to go through a lot of different nuances of that today, and that's a lot of where we're going to camp out. Actually. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Good. Yes. Good, Mike. Oh, uh, it was you, Steve. It was not mine. Yeah. Cal? I wouldn't say that the Mormon church, when they evangelize, they say, go into a closet by yourself, check your feelings, and if your feelings 
say that this could be true, it is true, and that's how they get converts. Yep. Yep, which is, which is a very bad uh, way to understand how God is going to interact with us. And we're going to talk a lot about that, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple of other ideas. It takes something that is clearly abnormal in Scripture and kind of makes it normal, right? So no, the normal way of doing business in Scripture, and you see this kind of mostly by the silence of Scripture. We see long periods of time where we don't have anything written down about what the people of God are doing or saying or talking about or thinking. And then we have a period in time where God interacts directly for a little while. And then things are silent again for, for a bit. Um, so it's what's abnormal in Scripture becomes normative for us, which that's, that's a bad pattern, right? Um, and the other one that, that I'll add to the list is that mysticism, this mystical way of thinking about things, makes God kind of seem tricky and sly um, instead of loving and kind. What good parent makes it hard for his kids to figure out what he wants and what he wants them to do, right? And the reality is that if God really wants you to do something specific and he's going to tell you, you won't have to figure out whether he's telling you or not. You won't have to discern or think about or understand. You'll know. And that's just, again, that's just coming back to the pattern of what we see in the scripture, right? So we can see why we should not rely on these methods, but it's still true that things like circumstance and feelings can help us make decisions. And so we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and ignore that. So the, the, the purpose of our, our time together today is to kind of see how these things can be used and used well. Uh, so as we've done in the past, we're going to follow the same pattern. We're going to look about at some ways not to do something, and then we're going to consider some ways that we can use something. And the first one we're going to consider is circumstances. So how are our circumstances able to instruct us or give us wisdom as to how to make decisions? And here's some wrong ways that we can, that we can uh, read circumstance. We see circumstances as God having opened or closed doors. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a way that this can be good, and we're going to cover that later. Uh, But there's also a mystical way to view this, which is essentially nonsensical. So a guy says, I'd planned on proposing to Mary, but it rained both times I wanted to ask, so I feel like God just might be closing the door on our relationship. No, (laughs) that just means that God was either giving you a soggy engagement or a different day. There's no real large significant to a pattern of events like that. Uh, Another way, bad circumstances mean that I somehow missed God's will. In other words, if things don't turn out the way I had hoped, then I must have made a bad decision. So did Jesus make a bad decision to go to the cross? Or did Paul make a bad decision to go to Rome? Where on earth do we get the idea that following God should always be daisies and roses? If things don't go well, it doesn't necessarily mean you've made a bad decision. Uh, And then third, thinking that accepting an impossible circumstance is a sign of weak faith. So do I put my grandmother in hospice? And if I do, does that mean that I don't believe that God can heal her? Or do I give up being a missionary to Nepal because I'm paralyzed and that means I don't have faith? It would be true that I'm weak in faith if God divinely revealed that he would heal my grandmother. Or if he divinely revealed that I should go to Nepal, it would be a lack of faith not to go. But the bullheaded attitude of I'm going to do what God wants regardless of the circumstances he throws in my way seriously overestimates our confidence in knowing what God wants in the first place. 
Now that leads us to some good ways that we can use circumstance to make decisions. Basically, we're doing well when we see circumstances as the good acts of a sovereign God given in part to help us make good decisions. Like BJ taught us in week number two, God is going to accomplish all his good purposes for us and, and for his world. Every last one is going, to be, is going to be accomplished. And no bad decision of yours or anyone else's for that matter is going to stop him. And that's wonderful news. So what does this mean for our, circumstance, our decisions? It means that we can trust God's plan, right? Sometimes in God's sovereignty, he uses circumstances to make a decision for us or to shut one down. I love how Pastor Matt Chandler talks about his wife. Quote, Do you know how I know she's the one woman in the world for me? Because we're married. Was it God's will for him to marry her out of all the women on the planet? Absolutely. And how does he know? He knows because they got married. And it's as simple as that. Nothing more, nothing more complicated. I'll give you an example from my own life. When Mary, and I, when Mary Margaret and I first got married... Our plan was for me to go to seminary and possibly become a seminary professor or to serve in a, chur- in a church in some capacity. We were saving money for tuition. We made campus visits to seminary. We were seeking advice from our pastor at the time. But then, as we were living life as a married couple, it became clear that neither one of us had actually trusted Christ for salvation from sin. A non-Christian has no business planning a career move that requires faith in Christ to accomplish, and so we decided that we should not continue to make plans to go to seminary. Our circumstances made the decision clear, and so I can safely say that God closed the door on that opportunity. Now, sometimes circumstances tell you something about yourself. You can't throw a ball to first base. It's unlikely God's calling you to try out for the Red Sox. Why is that not a lack of faith? Because God hasn't clearly told you to be a baseball player. If you keep getting shot down for a particular type of job, it may be that God hasn't equipped you to be in that line of work. So step back, talk to some good friends who know you well, and reassess what you're good at. But, you may be thinking, didn't you just, a few minutes ago, discount the whole God closing doors thing? Not in this way. What I was critiquing was a kind of mystical, quote-unquote, reading of the circumstances that points to God's secret will for my life that bizarrely he doesn't seem interested in making more clear to me. That would be like deciding not to fly to a place for your vacation because the last flight before you crashed. It's like a bad omen or something. What I am talking about here is a humble recognition that within God's good control, circumstances have changed, and my, my circumstances no longer make it seem like a wise decision. And when that happens, my job as a Christian is to fight to thoroughly and completely believe that God's plan, plan has revealed through providence are always good for his children. As the old hymn puts it, Whate'er my God ordains is right, he will never deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he'll not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. Someday when we are in heaven, we will be able to say these words from Revelation 15.4. Your, your righteous acts have been revealed. And we'll understand what God was up to. But we don't have that knowledge now. And so we live by faith and not by sight. And so we trust that whatever our God does is right, and when he has finally closed the de- definitely closed a door in our life, it is for our good and for his glory. 
There's a humble sweetness and contentment in life that comes from patiently accepting what God has done rather than bitterly fighting against it. And sometimes it feels that God uses circumstances to put our dreams to death. But as Christians, we need to hold those dreams with an open hand and trust that whatever he takes away, he is leaving something better in its place. Though we may not understand it now, we'll understand it one day in heaven. But of course, we need to look at the other side too. Does this lead us to a lazy complacency? And it certainly can. That's where the Apostle Paul's counsel can be a good guide. In 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul writes to slaves, he says this, Were you a bondservant when called? That is, when they were called to Christ. Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom. Avail yourself, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Now, did Paul hate slavery? The evidence certainly seems to say that he does. In 1 Timothy 1.10, he lists enslavers alongside murderers, men who practice homosexuality, liars, the sexually immoral, and perjurers as the lawless and disobedient. And yet, he tells the slave not to worry about the circumstance he's in. Trust God's providence, knowing that one day God will make the right, will right that wrong. But Paul doesn't call for complacency. If you can undo the evil, go for it. There, there is an open-handed ambition here that is a, a good example for us. On the one hand, it's ambitious. If you can change your situation, do it. On the other hand, it's open-handed. If you can't, don't let it bother you. One day, God will do what you cannot, and you can rest content in His good timing. So let me just stop there for a second. Questions about circumstances, thoughts that you may have. Yeah, Chris. Sometimes it's pretty clear to discern what's impossible. Mm-hmm. And some things are really, really impossible. Some it's true. Yep. Like in that. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm hearing what the what your question is, Chris. You're saying that uh, what we see is a closed door. Like Paul definitely saw door closed to him in certain regions. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also persevered when he needed to. Right. He did. He had a little extra help. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I think if I understand your question, Chris, is that you're trying to say, how is it that I understand when circumstances are a closed door and when my circumstances might indicate an open door? Is that kind of where your question is? Or when you should just persevere in spite of the fact that the door may seem closed? Yeah, I, it's a good question. Um, and I think really what that boils down to is... I think we're covering these two ideas last for a reason, right? These are the least reliable ways for us to make decisions. Um, We've already talked about God's word. We've already talked about the counsel of others. We've already talked about other things. So rely on those things more and on these things less. And yes, they are going to be tricky to discern. Uh, there are going to be times when it seems like a door should be closed and, or that God has closed the door, but he might he may not have actually closed the door. It just might seem that way to us, right? And so these, these ways are inherently tricky. I agree. Yeah. Other questions? Okay. Oh, yeah. Open and closed doors are easier to discern if you've already done the legwork towards uh, making a, a well-discerned, well-reasoned decision ahead of Yes. So uh, in cases where 
much easier to discern and close the doors than to just sit around and wait for uh, a clear open or clear closed door. Right. Uh, Yep, that's right, and which, is, which gets back to the idea of using those other means first and then factoring the data that you get from your circumstances into the decision uh, under the wisdom of, of other things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on. The next one we're going to talk about is feelings. So circumstances, what happens outside of us, feelings, or might be those subjective leanings inside of us. Um, we're going to talk about those now. And one of the most challenging aspects of decision-making is what to do with our feelings, right? What about those hunches, those subjective senses that God wants us to do something? Should we ignore them because feelings are unreliable? But on the other hand, if we ignore them, are we potentially guilty of quenching the spirit and squashing what God might be directing us to? Good questions. Um, And I think a good introduction to this topic is a small article that Mark Dever wrote. I'm going to read it to you. I do believe that God's spirit will sometimes lead us subjectively. So, for instance, I'm choosing to spend my life here on Capitol Hill because my wife and I sensed in 1993 that it's what God wanted us to do. However, I realized then and now that I could be wrong about that supposition. Scripture is never wrong. I was free in 1993 to stay in England or teach at a seminary, either of which would have been delightful opportunities. I understand that I was free to make those choices, but I chose consulting the Scripture, friends, wisdom, and my own subjective sense of the Lord's will to come to Washington, D.C. And even if I were wrong about that, I had and have that freedom in Christ to act in a way that is not sin. And I understand my pastoring here to not be sin, so I am free regardless of the sense of leading that I had. Most decisions I've made in my Christian life I have made with no sense of of subjective leading. Maybe some would say that this is a mark of my spiritual immaturity. I understand this to be the way a redeemed child of God normally lives in a fallen world. A subjective sense of leading... When we've asked for it, as James 1, 5, we, as in James 1.5, we ask for wisdom. And when God freely gives it, it's wonderful. The desire for such a subjective sense of leading, however, is too often in contemporary evangelical piety, binding our brothers and sisters in Christ, paralyzing them from making good, enjoying the good choices that God may provide, and causing them to wait wrongly before acting. So we can see that feelings are not invalid. They're just not first. So like we did before, let's start with some wrong ways we can use feelings in decision-making. First, the assumption that inner prompting is definitely the Holy Spirit. As Mark just said, he had an inner prompting to move to Washington, D.C., but, but he knew that his feeling could have come from the Spirit. He was well aware it might also have been nothing more than a feeling. Christians get into trouble all the time when they sense God is leading them to something and then believe that impression is God's absolute unmistakable direction from them. How many times have Christians presumptuously said, but God told me to fill in the blank? When what they mean is not Jesus appeared to me in a vision and gave me clear instruction, but instead I had a feeling during my quiet time that God was leading me that way. Feelings are good, but they're not reliable. So let's get rid of the God told me language entirely, unless, of course, God really does tell you. Second, we don't act until we have some inner peace. How did the Apostle Paul arrive in Corinth, for example? 1 Corinthians 2.3 I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. Did Paul have a sense of peace about going to Corinth? 
It certainly doesn't sound that way. And maybe that's why Jesus himself had to assure him in a vision in Acts 18 that no one would attack him or harm him. Consider the person who refuses to do what is plainly taught in Scripture. I just don't have a sense of peace about it, they might say. I think that is elevating the the reliability of a sense of peace or lack thereof way higher than it should have been, especially since obedience to God's law or walking faithfully through his providence may often lead to places and times where we do not have peace. I could keep going, but I think you get the point. Feelings are good, but they're not reliable indicators of God's will. Sometimes Christian leaders talk about leadings, hunches, and senses as if they have a special inner conversation with God that allows them to make supernaturally prescient decisions. How did you know to plant a church in that washed-out city? Well, God told me to, so I obeyed. That may sound good and pious, but except in extremely unusual situations, it's just not what actually happened. You just can't know if your impression is God's voice or not. But I can assure you that if he wants to tell you something, he will absolutely make sure that you know. Okay, so how should we use feelings in making our decisions? Let me give you three categories. First is intuition. God is absolutely amazing in how he's made our brains. And as it turns out, our brains are sometimes smarter than we give them credit for. You are constantly assembling information about the world around you, even beyond your rational thought process. And sometimes that leads to an intuition that you should do something even if you can't explain why. And sometimes you're right. Over time, each of us will learn how much we should trust our intuition or gut about things. Uh, Now we need to remember that as fallen creatures, our thinking, conscious or subconscious, is deeply flawed and sinful, which means our intuition is not a reliable guide, but nonetheless, sometimes it's worth taking into account, always subjecting it to the perfect authority of God's word. And likely, if you're 60, you can give more weight to it than if you're 40, and if you're 40, you can give more weight to intuition than if you're 20. Second, leadings prompted by the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes our feelings are more than mere intuition. Remember Mark in the article I read earlier talking about a subjective sense that he should give up an academic career and come to a little dying church in what was at that time a dangerous neighborhood in Capitol Hill. What was, this, was that the Spirit's leading? Well, in retrospect, it certainly seems to have been a good decision. He's, he's made a very good go of it as, as the pastor of that church. It's now a very large church, very safe neighborhood. All kinds of things have turned around. Um, <clears throat> But Mark was wary of his ability to discern whether that subjective sense was God's spirit or not. Here's how he described the situation to someone in his congregation. When he felt that he should go to Capitol Hill Baptist after visiting the church for the first time, he asked God to give his wife Connie the same sense if Washington was a good place for them to go. But he didn't say anything to her. Later, she told him of the strange burden she had for the little church on Capitol Hill. He still didn't tell her what he was feeling, but encouraged her to visit the church as well. And only after she returned from that visit, talking about her sense that they should move there, did he reveal what he'd been feeling. I think that's a great example of believing that God could use an inner subjective sense to guide us, while still maintaining an appropriate skepticism about our feelings. So, and then thirdly, we have desires. Probably the greatest value of our feeling is that they tell us what we want. They're a gauge of what's going on inside, what we value, what we fear, what we fear and in that sense, they're invaluable. On, if, on the other hand, you've decided that maturity in Christ means ignoring your feelings, you've abandoned one of the most valuable tools Jesus has given for your walk with him. 
Who can forget the great promise of Psalm 37? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you, what? The desires of your heart. Yes, your desires will change as you delight yourself in the Lord, but they're still desires, aren't they? So understanding our desires is important for a few reasons. First, in God's kindness, He often gives us wide latitude in what we do in life. And often being happy in Him will involve doing what we want. Should you marry godly man Joe or godly man Tim? Well, who do you want to be with for the rest of your life is the question in that case. Second, we'll often serve him better doing what we want to do. You love teaching kids. You deplore balancing books. My guess is you will more easily work as unto the Lord if you're a school teacher than if you're an accountant. Now, if God providentially makes you an accountant, you can certainly be faithful there. But if you can gain your freedom from accounting, do it. How wonderful it is when we do what we enjoy. How much easier it is to serve him with all of our heart in that case, right? Third, our desires can reveal where our hearts are attached to something other than God. Think of James 4, where our desires come from spiritual adultery, when we want something more than we want God. Learn to read your heart through the lens of your desires so you can confess sin and correct it for the decisions you make. And then fourth, our desires can actually be good, right? The more you want what Jesus wants in your life, the more trustworthy your desires will be. How do you get to that place? Through the regular disciplines of the Christian life. Prayer, time in God's word, repentance, and continued obedience. I find that Christians are sometimes surprised how often big decisions basically come down to what you want to do. This is where poor concepts of guidance can get in our way. Quote, so you're telling me that I should marry Joe simply because I want to. Well, you've done your homework. He's a mature Christian. You love being in the same church. You seem to communicate well together, and you love being with him. So why not? But how do I know he's the one God has for me? The reality is that's just not how God operates. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, you can marry anyone you wish as long as he's in the Lord. So you have freedom here. So if you want to marry him, Marry him. Let me sum up this section with four guidelines for listening to your feelings when you make decisions. One, in humility, recognize that your feelings can be wrong. Pray that God would orient your desire to his desires. Be skeptical of your feelings, like Mark was when he went to Washington, D.C. And above all else, never elevate your feelings over God's word and probably never over the strong godly counsel of others. Two, discuss your motives with those you know well. Part of being a Christian in a fallen world is, lean, is learning to make decisions with mixed motives. Simply knowing that your motives are mixed, because they often will be, is no reason to avoid making a decision. But a friend can help, help you correct for ungodly desires or fears that you know you have. Use a, and then number three, use appropriate vocabulary to describe your feelings. Not God told me or God led me to, but I feel as if it would be wise for me to. Or sometimes even, I feel that God has given me a desire to. Even the phrase discerning God's will can be really confusing here. So I would, I would suggest avoiding it. Because it suggests that our job is to hunt for his secret plan instead of using the wisdom he gave us to make a decision. If God wants to reveal his will to you, you will not have any problem discerning it. And then number four, correct for your natural biases. Are you hesitant by nature? You may need to learn to make decisions even when you're uncomfortable. Or in Christianese, quote-unquote, not at peace. 
Are you rash by nature? You may need to learn to subject your desires to the opinions of others before you act on them. So those are four ways that we can use to learn to, to manage feelings in the context of, of our decision making. Just, just quickly, do, you, do any, any questions come up as uh, directly connected to feelings? Yeah. I like your quote from that Mark guy who went to Capitol Hill. <laughs> he mentioned in his sentence, feelings last, after he had done, and I can't remember what all, but that was just something, it was the last thing in that sentence. Uh-huh. Yep. He had already done his homework. That's exactly right. So yeah, feelings come last. Again, these are, these are our least reliable ways of making decisions. And so we want to lean on them the least. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Other, other thoughts, questions? Okay, good. I want to ra- wrap up with uh, some ideas on wisdom here. So those were our five tools. We had God's word, prayer, counsel, circumstances, and feelings. But we haven't described using those tools, and we have we haven't described using those tools to discern God's will as if it's a hidden secret, and we're on some kind of a treasure hunt. Instead, we've about using them to pursue wisdom, which is what I want to finish off with. As B.J. said in the first class, the Christian approach to decision making is to tr- determine what is wise and then do it. But what is wisdom? Basically, we can boil it down to two things: right thinking and right doing. Wisdom is knowing God's ways and truth and acting in light of what God has said to be true. Almost everything we've taught so far in this class has been about that, acting wisely. And so it's not surprising that in the Bible, wisdom is linked very closely to God's will. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 5. Look closely then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. So how do we know what the will of the Lord is? Pursue wisdom. Don Carson puts it this way. Spiritual wisdom and understanding constitute the means by which God fills us with the knowledge of his will. How do we become wise? Well, as the Proverbs tell us, it is a lifelong pursuit, not something we start simply because we have a a big decision to make. Listen to the way it's said in Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. Notice the imperatives and how they seem to escalate in their intensity. Receive my words, treasure my commandments, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding, call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding, seek it like silver, search for it as for hidden treasure. If you do this, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, then you will know every good path, and wisdom will not come to you, but you must go get it through these means. And how do we do that? Fear of God. As Proverbs 9 puts it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We begin to grow in wisdom as we orient everything in our lives around Him, and as we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Fearing God precedes thinking like Him and living like Him. Let me say that again. Fearing God precedes thinking like Him 
and living like him. Second, use the means of grace. That's largely what this class has been about. Spend time in God's word. Not merely to make a decision, but to grow in wisdom every day. Pray, asking God for wisdom. Because in James 1, God promises to give you what you ask. Seek the counsel of others. Not merely about your decision, but about your whole life. Learn to trust God for his providence and seek to shape your desires around what he desires. And then third, obey. Job 28.28 puts it simply, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and turn away from evil is understanding. What you, what you understand to be, <clears throat> what, do what you understand to be wise, obey God, live in purity, and you will grow in wisdom. So how do we normally make decisions? Is it dreams, visions, fleeces, talking donkeys, hunches, lots, and impressions? No. It's wisdom. Let's pray daily that God would give us wisdom, and then we can make decisions freely and without regret. We have a couple minutes that we can spend uh, talking and discussing what we've, what we've learned either here or maybe, maybe over the rest of the course. Um, I'll, I'll put it out to you. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Good question. So does the so let me let me rephrase that. Does the fact that we all read the same Bible, we're a part of the same church, we're taking this course together, does that somehow mean that we're going to all make the same choices under the same circumstances? Fair enough. Yeah. And the answer to that is no. Um, so, uh, yes, we all read the same scripture, right? But that doesn't mean that the application of it is always the same for every person. Um, so that's number one. Number two, we, have, we do have our opinions and feelings and our own individual circumstances to consider, right? So you, you brought up the idea of voting for somebody in particular, right? You may have experiences that lead it to be very difficult for you to vote for that person because of a policy position they hold. I may not have that same that same experience, and so therefore I might not have that same concern. And so I might feel free to vote for that person. So there's all kinds of things that fold into the middle of all of our decisions that mean that we don't all have to make the same decision, nor should we ex- be expected to under the same circumstances. Not a will that we know about. He ser- God is sovereign over all things. And so therefore he has a will, that, I mean, everything that, that comes to pass, God sovereignly brings to pass. So if God wanted, God clearly wanted, you know, to use the political example again of a vote, God clearly wanted Donald Trump to be our president right now because that happened. God ordained that to come to pass, right? That doesn't, and he actually ordained all of our votes too. But that's part of his secret will. We cannot know that, Right? He, everything, so everything that comes to pass, God does bring to pass. But in the midst of doing that, and this is the part we don't understand, right? In the midst of doing that, he has incorporated somehow all of our decisions that are free on us. We were free to make the choice to vote for whoever we wanted to in the last election. And we did really and truly vote for who we wanted to in the last election. There was no coercion there. And yet it was God's will. So, but it's not a will that we can know. So that will be what we call God's secret will. 
right? And I think BJ covered this earlier in the class. God's secret will is not something that we can, that we can understand, and nor should we be trying to find it out. Um, so we should be taking the tools that we've been given and knowing that we have freedom to make choices and make decisions according to what we have for, for understanding and knowledge, both from the word, from prayer, from our, from our good counsel, from our feelings, from our circumstances, right? Um, and we, we bring all of that to bear on the decisions that we make and we can act freely and uh, with, with joy, knowing that we have chosen what, what seems best to us. I mean, read through the New Testament sometimes and just count the number of times that the apostles say, it seemed best that we should. It didn't seem like we had any other choice but to. You know, those kinds of phrases are all over the New Testament, as the, uh, you know, like in the book of Acts, for example, where you're seeing them make decisions. They're making their decisions about what seems right. Nobody, I mean, even though Paul, somebody mentioned Paul did have visions, it's true, but he didn't have a vision for every single decision he made. Right. So, good question. Yeah, Steve. It's very helpful uh, when you get to like Romans 14, where it talks about uh, a body of believers otherwise making different decisions that even they might not necessarily agree with one another on the decisions they make. That's right. And yet, the common denominator being God's approval of those decisions being their faith in making yeah. said decisions. That's right. Not necessarily the outcome of whether one guy needs to meet and the next guy doesn't, per se. Right. That's correct. So it would seem that God certainly has a divine will, which I'm thoroughly not aware of. But at the same time, what is God's concern for my decision-making paradigm is that I'm doing it in full assurance of faith and according yes. to my best possible understanding of his will yes. from revealed in Scripture. Yes. And that's the witness that judges my decisions. Yes, very, very much so. That, yeah. That Yep, that's right. And and you bring up a good point, Steve, and this is getting back to reading the same word. There are times in the scriptures that the scripture gives us options, right? Eat meat or not eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. There, that's not, that, there's not a prohibition there, and both sides are okay as long as they're being held in faith and not done in a way to cause our brother to stumble, right? So there's parameters, but we can come to different conclusions about whether it's okay to eat meat. And the scripture specifically gives us that. Freedom. So good, excellent point. Other thoughts? Yeah, Dustin. Um, question. So uh, as uh, baptized professing Christians, we believe in God's sovereignty and we believe in his goodwill. And he's promised us that, you know, as professing Christians, no good will be withheld from us. Um, and, and with that being said, uh, as Christians, what exactly does it mean to fear God if we trust in his sovereignty and we trust in his word that he will do good to us? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I think, um, help me if, I, if I'm right. Uh, what I'm hearing you, you say when you say fear God, you might be siding towards the, the emotion of fear. Is that, is that fair? You don't know. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just say it this way. If you are siding on that side that, you, that fear God has a kind of an emotional component, and I think sometimes it does. I mean, God is great, and he is glorious, and he is other, and there should be a sense of I'm not worthy in his presence, right? That's, so that's a good sense and feeling. What we talk about in the, in the wisdom literature when it says fear God, that's a, a little bit of a different thing. Fear God means 
you know that he's in charge and you're going to do what he says, right? And you're going to, you're going to, it's called wisdom, right? And it's pursuing of wisdom. It's pursuing of his desires. Um, and so it brings an additional dimension to that idea of fear. It's not, a, it's more of a respect idea than a, an emotional quaking in my boots idea. Right. And so when we talk about fearing God as the beginning of wisdom and fearing God as a way to gain wisdom and a way to help make decisions, what we're doing is we're saying God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. And that is a good thing. And he's doing good things for me. And I'm going to trust him. And he said that this is he said in his word, maybe clearly that this thing is right and that thing is wrong. And that's really hard. Everybody's going to I'm going to get persecuted for that, but I'm going to go forward and do it anyway because God said it was right. And that's fearing God more than man, right? I'm going to let God influence my decision more than I'm going to let man influence my decision. And that's the kind of fear that I think that we're talking about in the context of this course. Yeah, good question. Other, other questions? We have time for maybe one or two more. Chris? Yes. So Yeah, the reality is we need to give other people grace about the decisions they've made, just like we expect them to give, give grace to us. Because our decisions are not merely influenced by one uh, monolithic, you know, clearly defined manual, right, that we're all following. So we're going to come to different conclusions because our, you know, at the very least, from just from today's lecture, our circumstances are going to influence the decisions we make and our feelings are going to influence the decisions we make and those aren't wrong. Um, now they need to be held in good control and they need to be given strict and tight boundaries in our life, right? I'm not going to let my, my feelings run roughshod over the word of God, for example, you know, in the extreme case, but um, they still do influence and we need to allow grace for that. Um, you know, again, that policy decision that that politician made that directly harmed my ancestors or my family member, you can see why it would be difficult to vote for them, even though I may have the op opinion that that's the only right guy to vote for. Right. You can see how those those things, those things come into play. So, yeah, it's a good, good comment, Chris. Yeah, Chris. Ah, yes. 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 Excellent. Excellent point. Yes. We, we need to be keeping in mind when we have clear direction from the scriptures about when something is sinful and when something is ultimately a matter of conscience. Because that's really what you're poking at is that when things are a matter of conscience, they may be sin for one person, but not sin for another. Yeah. Yeah. Good. It's it's the time it's the time we're in we're at the beginning of the, of the campaign right. It's a concise example because we can definitively say that whoever rises to power did so because God had ordained that. Yes. It's a very nice clear example that that 
this is the will of God ultimately, and what part in that? Right. And, and often I've wondered, hey, if I vote for somebody who doesn't get elected, was I, was I battering up against God's will? Was I fighting God in his, in his attempts to ordain someone? And I think that's, of course, completely ridiculous. Yes, you're right. <laughs> I, I vote to, to voice my, my decision, to voice yep. my intent, yep. and even a no vote carries with it substantial information, right? That's correct. Winning by 51% is not the same as winning by 100%. It might very well shape policy. Right. Um, and so uh, if, we, if we vote against a candidate who, who ends up winning, uh, a dissenting vote bears with it certain amounts of information as to their leeway to make choices as well. And it shouldn't be thought that just because you had a dissenting vote to a someone who rose to power, you're right. somehow in confrontation with God's ultimate will. Right. Right. Well, those are all good comments and questions. It's nine. It's ten fifteen. So we're gonna wrap things up. I'll, I'm gonna close in prayer, and then we can get ready for our worship service. Father in heaven, we do thank you that. Um, you do lead us and guide us. You have given us so many good ways that we can use uh, to uh, make good decisions. Father, we are really in awe of the fact that folded into that mix is how we feel and what we think is right and all these kind of more subjective ways. That's all part and parcel of you carrying out your will in this world. And that just speaks to us of your greatness and your majesty and your grandeur because uh, that is just truly proves, if, if anything does, that you are other from us and you are to be worshipped and glorified. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that as we transition to our worship service this morning. You would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. And, Lord, we commit all of our decisions to you, knowing that you are in the process of working out your providence in our lives. We thank you and we praise you for all that you have given in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, folks.